to Even Darker. I'm so glad you're here. Having always been fascinated by fairy tales, mythical creatures, mythology, folk tales, and legends, I wanted to create a podcast about these exact stories. In each episode, Chris Gordon, Jay Stinnett, or Damian Drake will tell us a story. Then I, Regina Drake, will review the points of the story I found most interesting, shocking, or downright unforgivable. Allow me to show you the origins of things even darker. Take heed, these are in the original early content, not the Big Mouse versions. No shade on him, but this is not for the young. Excited to announce our edition of Mythical Moments of Mythology with Karen Ellinger. Finally, we are going to get a dose of mythology. My favorite. For our 21st episode, I have chosen to do a deep dive on Hansel and Gretel. The title of our story is Nanillo and Nanella. Kind of sounds like a cookie. It comes from Italy and it is folklore. The author is Giambattista Basili. And it is the year 1634. And now for our story. Nanillo and Nanilla. Woe to him who thinks to find a governess for his children by giving them a stepmother. He only brings into the house the cause of their ruin. There never yet was a stepmother who looked kindly on the children of another, or if by chance such a one were ever found, she would be regarded as a miracle and be called the white crow. But besides all those of whom you may have heard, I will now tell you of another, to be added to the list of heartless stepmothers whom you will consider well deserving the punishment she purchased for herself with ready money. There was once a good man named Jonico, who had two children, Nanillo and Nanilla, whom he loved as much as his own life. But death having, with the smooth file of time, severed the prison bars of his wife's soul. He took to himself a cruel woman who had no sooner set foot in the house that she began to ride a high horse saying, Am I come here indeed to look after another folk's children? A pretty job I have undertaken. I have all this trouble and be forever teased by a couple of squalling brats. With that, I had broken my neck ere I never ever came to this place to have bad food, worse drink, and get no sleep at night. Here's a life to lead. For Thus I came as a wife and not as a servant. 
but I must find some means of getting rid of those creatures or it will cost me my life. Better to blush once than to grow pale a hundred times. So I've done with them, for I have resolved to send them away or to leave this house myself forever. The poor husband, who had some affection for this woman, said to her softly, Wife, don't be angry, for sugar is dear, and tomorrow morning before the cock crows, I will remove this annoyance in order to please you. So the next morning, ere dawn, had hung out the red counterpane at the window of the east to air it. Jonico took the children one by each hand, and with good basket full of things to eat upon his arm, he led them to a wood, where an army of poplars and beech trees were holding the shade beside her. Then Jonico said, My little children, stay here in the woods and eat and drink merrily. But if you want anything, follow this line of ashes, which I have been strewing as we came along. This will be a clue to lead you out of the labyrinth and bring you straight home. Then giving them both a kiss, he returned weeping to his house. But at the hour when all creatures summoned by the constable of night pay to nature the tax of needful repose, the two children began to feel afraid at remaining in the lonesome place where the waters of the river which was thrashing the impatient stones or obstructing its course would have frightened even a hero. So they went slowly along the path of ashes, and it was already midnight ere they reached their home. When Panzacosa, their stepmother, saw the children, she acted not like a woman, but a perfect furry, crying aloud, whining with her hands, stamping with her feet, snorting like a frightened horse and exclaiming, What fine piece of work is this? Is there no way of ridding the house of these creatures? Is it possible, husband, that you are determined to keep them here to plague my very life out? Go, take them out of my sight. I will not wait for the crowing of cocks and the cackling of hens, or else be assured that tomorrow morning I'll go off to my parents' house for you do not deserve me. I have not brought you so many fine things only to be made a slave of children who are not my own. Poor Januko, who saw the matters were growing rather too warm, immediately took the little ones and returned to the woods. Where giving the children another basket of food, he said to them, You see, my dears, how this wife of mine, who has come into the house to be your ruin and nail in my heart, hates you. Therefore remain in the woods where the trees, more compassionate, will give you shelter from the sun, where the river, more charitable, will give you drink without poison, and the earth, more kind, will give you a pillow of grass without danger. And when you want food, follow the little path of bran which I have made for you in a straight line, and you could come seek where you require. So saying, he turned away his face, not to let himself be seen, weeping and disheartened, the poor little creatures. When Nanillo and Nanilla had eaten all that was in the basket, they wanted to return to the house. But alas, a jackass, the son of ill luck, had eaten up all the bran that was strewn upon the ground. So they were lost their way and wandered and forlorn in the woods in several days. 
feeding on acorns and chestnuts which they have found fallen on the ground but as heavenly awaits extends its arms over the innocent they came by chance a prince to hunt in the woods then Nanillo, hearing a baying of hounds was so frightened that he crept into a hollow tree and Nanilla set off running at full speed and ran until she came out of the woods and found herself on the seashore now it happened that some pirates who had landed there to get fuel saw Nanilla and carried her off. The captain took her home with him where he and his wife, having just lost a little girl, took her as her daughter. Meanwhile Nanilla, who had hidden himself in a tree, was surrounded by dogs, which made such a furious barking that the prince sent to find out the cause, and when he discovered the pretty little boy, who was so young that he could not tell whether his father or mother he ordered one of the huntsmen to set him upon his saddle and take him to the royal palace then he had him brought up with great care and instructed in various arts and among other things he had him taught that of a carver so that before three and four years had passed Danilo became so expert in the art that he could carve a joint to a hair now, about this time, it was discovered that the captain of the ship, who had taken Anilla to his house and was a sea robber, and the people wished to take him prisoner, but get him timely notice from the clerks in the law courts, who were his friends and whom he kept in his pay, he fled with all his family. It was decreed, however, perhaps by the judgment of heaven, that he who had committed his crimes upon the sea, upon the sea should suffer the punishment of them. For having embarked in such a small boat, no sooner was he upon the open sea than there came such a storm of wind and turmoil of the waves that the boat was upset and all were drowned, except for Nanilla, who having no share in the corsair's robbery, like his wife and children, escaped the danger. For just then a large enchanted fish, which was swimming about the boat, opened its huge throat and swallowed her down. The little girl now thought to herself, that her days were surely at an end, when suddenly she found a thing to amaze her inside the fish. Beautiful fields and fine gardens, and a splendid mansion with all that her heart could desire, in which she lived like a princess. Then she was carried quickly by the fish to a rock, where it chanced that the prince had come to escape the burning heat of the summer and enjoy the cool sea breeze. And whilst a great banquet was preparing, Nanillo had stepped upon a balcony of the palace on the rock to sharpen his knives, priding himself greatly on inquiring the honors of his office. When Nanilla saw him through the fish's throat, she cried aloud, Brother, brother, your task is done. The tables are laid out, every one. But here in the fish I must sit and sigh, O brother, without you I shall surely die. Nanillo at first paid no attention to the voice, but the prince, who was standing on the another balcony, and had also heard it, turned his direction whence the sound came, and saw the fish. And when he again heard the same words, he was beside himself with amazement, and ordered a number of servants to try whether by any means they can ensnare the fish and draw it to land. At last, hearing the words, Brother, brother, constantly repeated, he asked all his servants one by one whether any of them had lost a sister. And Nanillo replied that he recollected as a dream having had a sister when the prince found him in the woods.
but he had never seen or heard of her since. Then the prince told him to go nearer to the fish and see what was the matter, for perhaps this adventure might concern him. As soon as Anilo approached the fish, it raised its head upon the rock, and opening its throat six palms wide, Nanilla stepped out, so beautiful that she looked just like a nymph in some interlude, come forth from that animal at the incarnation of a magician. When the prince asked her how it all happened, she told him a part of her sad story, and that the hatred of their stepmother, but not being able to recollect the name of their father nor their home. The prince caused a proclamation to be issued, commanding that whoever lost two children named Nanilo and Nanilla in the woods should come to the royal palace, and there they would receive joyful news of them. Januko, who had all this time passed a sad and desolate life, believing that his children were been devoured by wolves, now hastened with great joy to seek the prince and told them that he had lost the children. And when he had related their story, how he had been compelled to take them to the woods, the prince gave him a good scolding, calling him a blockhead for allowing a woman to put her heel upon the, his neck till he was brought to send away two such jewels of his children. But after he had broken Jonico's head with these words, he applied it to the plaster of consolation, showing him the children whom the father embraced and kissed for half an hour without being satisfied. Then the prince made him pull off his jacket and had him dressed like a lord, and sending for Jonico's wife, he showed her those two golden pippins and asked her what the person would deserve who should do them any harm and even endanger their lives. And she replied, For my part, I would put her into a cloak cask and send her rolling down a mountain. So it shall be done, said the prince. The goat has butted at herself. Quick now, you have passed the sentence, and you must suffer it. For having borne these beautiful stepchildren such malice, so he gave orders that the sentence should be instantly executed. Then choosing a very rich lord among his vassals, he gave him Nanilla to wife, and the daughter of another great lord to Nanillo, allowing them enough to live upon with their father, so that they wanted for nothing in the world. But the stepmother, shut into a cask and shut out from life, kept crying through the bunghole as long as she had breath. To him who mischief seeks shall mischief fall. There comes an hour to recompense all. This version was first published in Naples by Basile, who, it is believed, collected it chiefly in Crete, possibly Venice. I just couldn't pass up a version with pirates, princes, and magical fish with meadows inside them. Delightful. Now, I realize you were probably expecting Hansel and Gretel, as known from the Grimm's Brothers, published first in 1812, and the final revision to it in 1857. It is thought that the grim source for Hansel and Gretel was Henriette Dorothea Wilde. This was taken from a handwritten note in the brother's personal copy of the first edition book. Fun fact, Wilhelm Grimm married Dorothea Wilde in 1825. With this podcast, it is my hope to discover the origins of the well-worn stories from our childhood, 
So I'd prefer not to retell you a story you already know. Instead, to be able to introduce tales that are hopefully unknown to you and to myself, such as Little Thumb by Charles Perrault in 1697, which at a guess I would have thought might be the story of Tom Thumb, though it is not. It is an excellent story, but far too long for my reader. Here, I'll summarize the story a bit for you. Little Thumb is the story of a woodcutter and his wife with seven, yes, seven children, all boys. The youngest and possibly brightest is Little Thumb, named so because he was as big as a thumb when born, and they thought him simple-minded because he didn't speak much. In this version, the father comes up with the idea of ditching the kids in the woods and threatens to beat the wife several times in the story. Again, we have the pebbles and the crumbs, the crumbs failing. The boys become lost until Little Thumb sees a light and leads them to the ogre's house. There are seven ogre princesses who haven't eaten humans, but they have drunk their blood. Little Thumb outsmarts the ogre father, and in a tragic mistake, because the ogre father is blackout drunk. He beheads his daughters, thinking it's the boys. The boys run away, but the ogre puts on his seven-league boots and goes after them. Now, I won't tell you the end in case you want to give it a goog. I can't remember where I read about seven-league boots, so if you're unfamiliar, let me explain. The boots allow the person wearing them to take strides of seven leagues per step, resulting in great speed. The catch is, wearing them will awaken the devil wind. I thought leagues was a measurement for water. I'll have to look into that. So, the moral to Little Thumb is as follows. It is no affliction to have many children. If they are good-looking, courteous, and strong. But if one is sickly or slow-witted, he will be scorned, ridiculed, and despised. However, it is often the little urchin who brings good fortune to the entire family. Well, hey, that's a lot to unpack. First, urchin. The definition it's usually used in regards to a street urchin, have a reputation for being a mischievous or disrespectful youth. Strangely enough, urchin comes from the 13th century French word, urichon, which means hedgehog and is still used as such in parts of England today. Talk about a mixed message. Though if they're not a Captain America sort of child, they will be despised. And then the moral ends with it's the urchin who brings good fortune. I mean, pick a lane, would you? As promised, now for even darker.
Once upon a time, there was a poor man who had a wife and two children, a boy and a girl. He was so poor that he possessed nothing in the world but the ashes of his hearth. His wife died, and after a time he married another woman, who was so cantankerous in bad nature, and from morning till evening, as long as the day lasted, she gave the poor man no peace, but snarled and shouted at him. The woman said to him, Do away with these children, you cannot even keep me. How then can you keep all these mouths? For was she not a stepmother? The poor man stood her nagging for a long time, but then one night she quarreled so much that he promised her that he would take the children into the forest and leave them there. The two children were sitting in the corner, but held their peace and heard all that was going on. The next day, the man, taking his axe upon his shoulder, called to the children and said, Come with me into the forest. I'm going to cut wood. The little children went with him, but before they left, the little girl filled her pockets with ashes from the hearth, and as she walked along, dropped little bits of coal the way they went. After a time, they reached a very dense part of the forest where they could not see their way any longer, and there the man said to the children, Wait here for a while. I am only going to cut wood yonder. When I have done, I will come back and fetch for you. And leaving the children there in the thicket, he went away, heavy-hearted, and returned home. The children waited for a while, and seeing that their father did not return, the girl knew what he had done. So they slept through the night in the forest, and the next morning, taking their brother by the hand, she followed the trace of ashes which she had left on the road, and thus came home to their own house. When the stepmother saw them, she did not know what to do with herself. She went almost out of her mind with fury. If she could, she would have swallowed them in a spoonful of water. So furious was she, the husband, who was a weakling, tried to pacify her and to endeavor to get the children away by one means or another, but did not succeed. When the stepmother found that she could not do anything through her husband, she made up her mind for herself to get rid of them. So one morning, when her husband had gone away, she took the little boy, and without saying anything to anybody, she killed him and gave him to his sister to cut him up, and prepared a meal for all of them. What was she to do, if she was not to be killed like her brother? She had to do what her stepmother asked of her. And so she cut him up and cooked him ready for the meal, but she took the heart and hid it away in a hollow tree. When the stepmother asked her where the heart was, she said that a dog had come and taken it away. In the evening, when the husband came home, she brought the broth with the meal for the husband to eat, and she sat down and ate of it, and so did the husband, not knowing what he was eating, the flesh of his own child. The little girl refused to eat it. She would not touch it. After they had finished, she gathered up all the little bones and hid them in a hollow of a tree where she had put the heart. The next morning, out of the hollow of the tree came a little bird with dark feathers, and sitting of the branch of the tree began to sing, Cuckoo, my sister has cooked me, and my father has eaten me. But I am now a cuckoo, and safe from my stepmother. When the stepmother, who happened to be near the tree, heard what the little bird was singing, in a fury and fright, she took a heavy lump of salt, which lay near at her hand, and threw it at the cuckoo. But instead of hitting it, the lump fell upon her own head and killed her on the spot and the little boy has remained a cuckoo to this very day
This story is from Romania. The story of Hansel and Gretel, among others like we've been shown today, were born out of the Great Famine of 1314 to 1322. It was an eight-year famine caused by volcanic activity in Southeast Asia and New Zealand, creating a prolonged climate change that led to crop failures and massive starvation across the globe. Scholars estimate that the Great Famine impacted 400,000 square miles of Europe, 30 million people, and may have killed off up to 25% of the population in certain areas. The elderly during the Great Famine chose to starve to death to allow the young to live. Others committed infanticide or abandoned their children. There is even evidence of cannibalism. William Rosen's book, The Third Horseman, cites an Estonian chronicle that in 1315, mothers were fed their children. We're still, yes, I said, we're still. So cover your ears if you can't take it. An Irish chronicler also wrote that the famine was so bad People were so destroyed by hunger that they extracted the bodies of the dead from cemeteries and dug out the flesh from the skulls and ate it. I don't think that was flesh. Also, the survivors, or shall we call them cannibals of the time, will next have to face the Black Death. Yikes. And I sometimes think we have it rough. And now for our weekly installment of Pinocchio. Pinocchio, Chapter 16. If the poor marionette had dangled there much longer, all hope would have been lost. Luckily for him, the lovely maiden with the azure hair once again looked out her window. Filled with pity at the sight of the poor little fellow being knocked helplessly about by the wind, she clapped her hands sharply together three times. At the signal, a loud whir of wings and quick flight was heard, and a large falcon came and settled itself on the window ledge. What do you command? My charming fairy, asked the falcon, bending his beak in deep reverence, for it must be known that, after all, the lovely maiden with azure hair was none other than a very kind fairy who had lived for more than a thousand years in that very forest. Do you see the marionette hanging from the limb of the giant oak tree? I see him. Well, fly immediately to him with your strong beak break the knot which holds him tied take him down and lay him softly on the grass at the foot of the oak the falcon flew away and after two minutes returned saying i've done what you've commanded how did you find him alive or dead at first glance i thought he was dead but i was wrong for as soon as i loosened the knot around his neck gave a long sigh and mumbled with a faint voice. Now I feel better. 
The fairy clapped her hands twice. A magnificent poodle appeared, walking on his hind legs, just like a man. He was dressed in court livery. A tricorn, trimmed with golden lace, was set rakishly at an angle over a wig of white curls that dropped down to his waist. He wore a jaunty coat of chocolate-covered velvet with diamond buttons and with two huge pockets, which were always filled with bones, dropped there at dinner by his loving mistress. Breeches of crimson velvet, silk stockings, and low silver-buckled slippers completed his costume. His tail was encased in a blue silk covering, which was to protect it from the rain. Come, Meridoro, said the fairy to him. Get my best coach ready and set out toward the forest. On reaching the oak, you will find a poor half-dead marionette stretched out on the grass. Lift him up tenderly, place him on the silken cushions of the coach, and bring him here to me. The poodle, to show that he understood, wagged his silk-covered tail two or three times and set off at a pace. In a few minutes... A lovely coach made of glass with lining as soft as whipped cream and chocolate pudding and stuffed with canary feathers pulled out of the stable. It was drawn by 100 pairs of white mice and the poodle sat on the coachman's seat and snapped his whip gaily in the air as if he were a real coachman in a hurry to get to his destination. In a quarter of an hour, the coach was back. The fairy, who was waiting at the door of the house, lifted the poor little marionette in her arms, took him to the dainty room with the mother-of-pearl walls, put him to bed, and sent immediately for the most famous doctors of the neighborhood to come to her. One after another, the doctors came, a crow and an owl and a talking cricket. I should like to know, signori, said the fairy, turning to the three doctors gathered about the Pinocchio's bed. I should like to know if this poor marionette is dead or alive. At this invitation, the crow stepped out, felt Pinocchio's pulse, his nose, his little toe. Then he solemnly pronounced the following words. To my mind... This marionette is dead and gone. But if any evil chance he were not, then there would still be a sure sign that he is still alive. I'm sorry, said the owl, to have to contradict the crow, my famous friend and colleague. To my mind, this marionette is alive. But if by any evil chance he were not, then there would sure be a sign that he was wholly dead. And do you hold any opinion? The fairy asked the talking cricket. I say that a wise doctor, when he does not know what he's talking about, should know enough to keep his mouth shut. However, that marionette is not a stranger to me. I have known him a long time. Pinocchio, who until then had been very quiet, shuddered so hard that the bed shook. That marionette, continued the talking cricket, 
is a rascal of the worst kind. Pinocchio opened his eyes and closed them again. He is rude, lazy, and a runaway. Pinocchio hid his face under the sheets. That marionette is a disobedient son who's breaking his father's heart. Long, shuddering sobs were heard, cries and deep sighs. Think of how surprised everybody was when, on raising the sheets, they discovered Pinocchio half-melted in tears. When the dead weep, they are beginning to recover, said the crow solemnly. I am so sorry to contradict my famous friend and colleague, said the owl. But as far as I'm concerned, I think when the dead weep, it means they do not want to die. I think this might be my favorite chapter thus far. I mean, we've got the fairy, who's a thousand years old, a falcon, a poodle called Matrador with diamond buttons, rather overdressed. I mean, his outfit went on forever. And Pinocchio's alive. I mean, I really thought we'd killed him off. hundred pairs of white mice drawing the carriage filled with canary feathers. <laughs> it's so great. And the cricket spills all the tea on everybody but he did forget to mention that Pinocchio is a cricket killer. I can't wait for the next chapter. Now for our new segment, Mythical Moments in Mythology with Karen Ellinger. In Greek mythology and religion, Artemis is the goddess of the hunt, the wilderness, wild animals, nature, vegetation, childbirth, care of children, and chastity. She was heavily identified with Selene the moon and Hecate, another moon goddess, and was thus regarded as one of the most prominent lunar deities in mythology. She would often roam the forests of Greece, attended by her large entourage, mostly made up by nymphs, some mortals, and hunters. Actien in Greek mythology is the son of a priestly herdsman and was famous like Achilles in the later generation by being trained with the centaur Syrian. Artemis was bathing in the woods when the hunter Actien stumbled across her, thus seeing her naked. He stopped and stared, amazed at her ravishing beauty. Once seen, Artemis got revenge on Actien. She forbade him speech. If he tried to speak, he would be changed into a stag for the unlucky profanation of her virginity's mystery. Upon hearing the call of his hunting party, he cried out to them and immediately transformed. At this, he fled deep into the woods. In doing so, he came upon a pond and seeing his reflection groaned. His own hounds then turned upon him and pursued him, not recognizing him. An endeavor to save himself, he raised his eyes and would have raised his arms had he had them toward Mount Olympus. The gods did not heed his plea and he was torn to pieces. The end. Artemis. My first thought is the three musketeers. But here it is the name of a goddess. And I think I knew that, but it's been so long since I looked at mythology. I'm going to learn so much from Karen. 
I looked up the definitions of profanation. It means blasphemous behavior, the act of depriving something of its sacred character. Wow. Hey, Artemis, give a guy a break. Or did he have evil intent in his heart when he called out? He didn't, right? He was calling out for help. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Even Darker. Please review and follow us. If you'd like to support us, do it. I'd love to hear your feedback, so leave a voice message if you are so inclined. I want to thank two of my most favorite men on this planet, Damian Drake and Jay Stinnett, for being our storytellers. And give an even darker welcome to Karen Ellinger. Even Darker is made with Anchor and can be found on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcast platforms.